Church, would you sing this with us as you speak? Lift our voice. As you speak. fun singing those truths with you guys to start off tonight's service. You can take a seat. My name is Scott Jones. If I don't know you, hi. If I do know you, hi. Um, I hope you've had a good day. I hope you've enjoyed the snow. I was um, tucked away at the lodge at the back of campus uh, for a couple hours today with Camp War Eagles Ozone Leaders. They were having a, a leader training. Enoch was there. There was a bunch of folks over in the lodge being trained today and uh, being led by a lot of people who are actually in this body. So it was a good day for me of community and friends. I hope you guys had a good day with, with friends or community or family as well. Glad you're here. Glad you braved the crazy roads. <laughs> we got some um, announcements, uh, some opportunities for you. So first, we had, man, camp's on my mind. I just said announcements and opportunities. That's such a Camp War Eagle thing. Um, first, uh, the training center. We have some classes coming up. So scan this QR code. It will take you to the news page. Um, if you'd like, you can sign up for this Panorama Plus, uh, Panorama Plus 6 Kingship United Monarchy class coming up. Um, if you haven't done any of our training center classes yet, you should. They're awesome. Our church has put together um, entire curriculums uh, that take us through our theology, um, what we believe is a church, panorama of the Bible, um, aligning our finances with the heart of God, and, and much more. So go ahead and, and check out those classes. Um, also, uh, there's a new song written by Fellowship Worship that is out now. So in case you didn't know, our worship teams at all fellowship congregations come together often and write music for us to sing in our services. Um, and they've just written a new song, they being Jimmy Cook and Ryan Burton down at Fellowship Fayetteville, just wrote a new song called Remind Us. And this song is actually written for our Jonah series. Uh, so we're going to be singing it tonight. Um, would love for you guys to check it out on whatever platform you listen to your music. Um, you'll be able to find it there. We uh, also have Discover Mosaic class happening soon. So if you're new to Mosaic and you are looking to uh, become a member here, um, you're looking to join this body and join this family 
please sign up for Discover. Um, or if you've been going to Mosaic for a long time and you are uh, just wanting to know more about who we are, know more about our body and know more about why Mosaic is here, why Fellowship Bible Church is here, please join Discover Mosaic. The dates are up there. I think, um, again, that QR code will take you to the news page uh, where you'll be able to see more information about Discover Mosaic and sign up if you'd like to be a part of that community. So, um, I didn't tell you at the beginning when I introduced myself, but I am the student team leader here at Mosaic. Um, There's a team of four of us, and we have tons of fun with our 6th through 12th grade students all the time. Um, And we have a couple things uh, coming up that I'd just love to talk to you about briefly. First is winter retreat. Uh, If you have a high school student, 9th, 10th, 11th, or 12th grade kiddos, please sign them up for winter retreat or at least talk to them about it. We would love to have them at Winter Retreat with us. That's happening the first weekend of February, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We'll be going down to Lake Fort Smith State Park, staying in some lodges down there. We did it a couple years ago. Um, It's a really sweet time. We're looking forward to doing that again. Um, Also, spring break trips are coming up, too, in our student ministry. Uh, We actually have six different trips, one sixth through eighth grade trip that's staying local and working with um, Camp War Eagles after school program SOAR all week and serving with them. And, um, and there's four or five other high school trips that are going different places all around the country, all with different missions that um, all center around uh, worshiping God more intently, um, learning about his kingdom and his people more intently, and also serving uh, more intently. Um, if you are interested, not only um, in, in getting your kiddo signed up for one of those trips, uh, deadline is passed, but you can always call me and talk about it, um, then we, I would love to talk to you. But also, if you're interested in giving or supporting those trips, our students would be really blessed by that. They're in the middle of their fundraising right now. Um, so that QR code, again, will take you to the Mosaic news page uh, where you can follow the link to give if you would like to support some of our students and where they're going over spring break. I think that is it. Uh, We are going to read our offering um, prayer together. So if you would stand up with me. Every time we gather, we have an opportunity um, to give. We have an opportunity to trust the Lord with our our treasure, um, as well as our time, as well as our talents. Um, So offering is just a practical time um, to humble ourselves before the Lord and to obey him. By, by giving of our treasure and, and asking, Lord, would you do much with it? Uh, now, some of you might give online. Um, so as we pass around the plate, or even if you're not giving, even as you hold the plate for that second as you're passing it, just may that second be a moment that you call upon the Lord and, and worship him with a heart of giving, a heart of submitting everything that you have over to him. Let's uh, read this prayer together. O Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiplied the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gift to us. 
your son and your spirit. Amen.
God, it's such a gift to hear the voices of your people praise your name. Lord, thank you for meeting us. Lord, thank you for living in our hearts and our souls and being our guide as we step forward every day. Lord, and in this moment, we realize you're here leading us and teaching us. So would you give our hearts a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit? Would you show us the Father through this story? Show us the Son through this story. Jesus, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. It has been a blessing um, to be ministered to by the, the teachers the last two weeks. You know, one of the things I, I love about this church family is if you're, if you're a little confused by how Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas works, we are one church that worships and does life together in multiple congregations. Um, what that means is we have different congregations that gather for worship and do community together who all exist as a part of one larger church under one group of elders. Now, I even think there's, there's precedent for this in the Bible. Uh, you'll see letters written to a city that's to the whole church in a certain city, but then they acknowledge their gatherings in different places across the city, and that's kind of how we operate as fellowship. Uh, we have a, a campus down in Fayetteville with a congregation there, one launching in Bentonville soon. But here at Rogers... We actually have three congregations that meet across the course of a weekend. We have Celebrate Recovery on Friday night, and then we have Fellowship Mosaic on Saturday night, and Fellowship Rogers on Sunday morning. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but we got blessed with teaching from two other congregations in the last two weeks. On New Year's Day, wouldn't you know it, Colin Jackson and I both had COVID, and so Thursday afternoon, we're in a scramble, and we send a text out, and Sam Hannon, who is the congregational leader for Rogers Sunday morning, who taught me how to preach the Bible, um, literally one of the first times I ever had to teach, he took me to lunch with a blank sheet of paper with a passage on it, and he said, all right, let's go to work. And he trained me and coached me, and he jumped up and said, hey, I would love to come teach Fellowship Mosaic this weekend. So we had Sam come in and launch us, and then the following weekend, we had Rodney Holmstrom come in from Celebrate Recovery and, and teach on Jonah too. And I was just so blessed and thankful uh, for that team coming and serving us. I'm thankful to be a part of a, a larger church family and what we get to do there. And I'm really excited to be back tonight. So um, as we jump into Jonah chapter three, there... There is something we need to know, a, a bit of crucial information that, that lies in the background of everything that's going on in this book. You see, when you, when you talk to people and you ask them, what is God like? You're, gonna, you're almost everyone has an opinion of what God is like. Even atheists have an opinion of what kind of God doesn't exist. And it's always interesting to ask the question, um, I was coached by this in a friend, anytime somebody makes a really strong claim, a really great follow-up question is, how'd you come to think that? How'd you come to that conclusion? And it's an interesting question to go, where did our idea of God come from? What shaped how we picture God as a person to be? And you see, by the time we get to the New Testament, by the time we get to Jesus, we have 2,000 years of God showing us what he's like so that all those ideas about God have been well-established. But if we rewind all the way back 
to the story of Moses. Have you heard the story of Moses and the exodus out of Egypt or at least since the the, uh, Prince of Egypt movie? That's a great place to start. Back then, at that moment, the people of Israel didn't know much about what God was like. They had spent hundreds of years as slaves in Egypt and a voice comes out of a fire and says, hey Moses, I'm the creator of the universe, go lead a revolution. And Moses goes, okay. And he goes in, he leads them out of Egypt, he gets to this mountain and God's giving them commandments and he's saying, this is how you're gonna live with me. And Moses goes, hey God, can you like tell me a little bit more about you please? I'd really like to know who this is I'm gonna be following. I'd really like, if if I'm gonna lead these people, if I'm gonna take everything you're telling me and go lead a nation, it would be really helpful if you would reveal more of yourself to me so I can know what kind of God I'm telling them to follow. And out of that, we get Exodus chapter 34. And if this seems like a little deviation from Jonah, trust me, this this is gonna be worth our time. In Exodus chapter 34, verse six, This is what happens when Moses says, God, show me your glory. Show me who you are. And I can imagine Moses is ready to see power and thunder and lightning and all kinds of impressive displays. And instead what God says is, you couldn't handle all of that if I showed it to you. So I want you to go hide behind that rock over there. I'm going to put my hand over your face so you can't even see me. And I'm going to pass by. And instead of getting to see an awesome display... God says this, and and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. He's saying his name there, Yahweh, Yahweh. And when you said a name twice like that, that means I'm about to tell you what that name means. So he's saying, Moses, I'm gonna tell you what's most important to know about me. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, many of us, it's interesting, we might read that passage and get really hung up on the end. Wait, what? He's gonna punish three or four generations for one sin? That, to, to get hung up there is to actually miss the whole point of what's going on. Hebrew literature loved to make a point by exaggerated comparisons. What is God saying here? Do you notice how many he's gonna offer forgiveness to? There's a number given. How many get forgiveness in this description? You can say it out loud. Thousands. And then how many generations will get disciplined? Three or four? What's the point here? When my people rebel against me, I will send them into a season of discipline. And it could even last a couple of generations. There could be a couple of generations of discipline. But if you weigh my discipline for sin against my forgiveness and my mercy, There's no comparison. So don't think I'm a God who doesn't take sin seriously. Don't think I'm a God who won't discipline rebellion. But you need to know my heart is a heart of mercy and compassion. Slow to get angry. 
ready to just pour my love and faithfulness out on everyone, thousands. This description of God is gonna get picked up over and over again. It's the most quoted description of God in the entire Bible. This becomes foundational. You're gonna see it throughout the Psalms and sneak peeks next week. You're actually gonna see it in Jonah chapter four. At one of the crucial moments for this book, Jonah's gonna say, oh God, I know what you're like. And he quotes Exodus 34. This characterization of God is what is underlying the entire story of Jonah. And it's crucial for us to have this understanding in mind when we come to Jonah chapter three. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter three. And we're gonna see our, uh, our obnoxiously stubborn little prophet story keep going on here. And as, as Sam laid out really well at the beginning uh, of this series, the book of Jonah works in a really wonderful parallel fashion. It opens in chapter one the same way that chapter three opens. In almost a word-for-word quote, Jonah chapter three, verse one, matches Jonah chapter one, verse one. It's like God says, hey, let's rewind and try this again. So in Jonah chapter three, verse one, we read, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And you remember how Jonah responded last time? Jonah got up and he ran the other way, the opposite direction as far as he could. But this time, we read verse three, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Right after he's come out of that really fun fish incident and been vomited it out on the shore, apparently he decided he didn't wanna try that again. Now, as Rodney pointed out last week, we don't see a strong change of heart in Jonah in chapter two. We see that he's really thankful that he's not dead and he acknowledges that God's in control. We haven't really seen a heart change. So he's at this place where he's, he's ready to obey. He knows that that disobedience didn't work out well for him. So he obeys and he goes to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Okay, now this is a place where sometimes, um, I wanna be as respectful as I can, sometimes people get educated past their intelligence. Is that too sassy for how to say that? And there's a, this phrase here says that Nineveh, Nineveh is a city that was a three days journey through it. And scholars read that and said, well, no, actually we have the archeological dig of Nineveh. We know how big the city is. It would not take somebody three days to walk from one side of the city to the other. You cannot trust the Bible. Clearly, this is a made-up story without any truth in it. Probably, what this phrase means is not that it literally would take you three days to walk from one side to the other. Probably, if you have a prophet going to a city to proclaim judgment, he's probably gonna walk through the streets of the city and preach to everyone in the city. So probably what this means is Jonah's preaching mission, it would have taken him three days to work through the whole city with his message. So, Probably we don't, there's much to do about nothing with that complaint, but just in case you ever come across that argument, um, there's probably no archeological issue with saying Nineveh would have taken three days for Jonah to go through. It's probably three days to preach through. And so it says it would have taken him three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I mean, this is like the crazy billboard guy down on Dixon Street, right? Like that's the image here. 
um, you don't get a really wonderful sermon. Notice, as Jonah comes to town, how much do you see about the character of God in this message? Nothing. You get the feeling that Jonah is doing the bare minimum that he has to do here. He is still the reluctant prophet. I almost hear him kind of lazily saying it. 40 more days and Nineveh's gonna be turned over. 40 more days, get ready, it's coming. And he walks throughout the whole city saying this. And, and we've heard this city is the definition of wickedness in the ancient world. These are brutal, vicious murderers. And Jonah, the Hebrew prophet, is walking through the city telling them that they're all gonna die in 40 days. He had to have looked nuts. And a really surprising thing happens. It's fun to picture like an original audience listening to this story. Like if you've never heard the story of Jonah before and you hear Jonah shows up and he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Then you read verse five. The Ninevites believed God. What? What could possibly explain the Ninevites who are these wicked pagans who worship foreign gods, when a prophet from a little nation they're about to squash shows up and says, 40 days are gonna be overturned, what would cause them to believe so quickly? Well, there's a few suggestions. Some think that perhaps they knew about Jonah's fish incident. Possible. But there's something else archeologically happening. We know the years that Jonah lived from a cross-reference in other places in the scriptures. And we also know that at that same time, Nineveh, went through a devastating series of events. Their kingdom had fallen into disrepair for a while. And we actually have record that they had seen multiple signs in their own prophets of disaster and doom coming. It seems like God, through other events, had actually been preparing Nineveh for this message so that they're all on edge and they're going through something difficult and they are primed and ready for an answer. Why is this happening to us? We see nations go through this all the time. You know what happened on the first Sunday after 9-11? Churches were filled. When, when nations go through disasters, they tend to look to God or gods for answers to explain what's happening. And it seems like God had been preparing Nineveh for this moment. So they're asking the question, what's wrong with our nation? Why are we falling apart? And then a fish spits a prophet up onto the shore who comes and says, 40 days and you're all gonna die. And they panic. They believe the message and look, look at what happens. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. This was a way of disciplining themselves to show their grief and to show that they were seeking forgiveness and a change. Verse six, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, those poor animals, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that he will not punish. Now notice, 
the king of Nineveh doesn't know what God he's dealing with. He doesn't know what Jonah and every Israelite knows. He wonders, who knows? Maybe this is a God who will have compassion on us. So if we've got 40 days till destruction, let's do everything we can to show that we're ready to change. And then in verse 10, we read, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. There's a wonderful little play on words in that verse. Uh, Last week, he talked about the Greek word metanoia that means uh, repentance. The Hebrew word that matches that is the word shuv, and it means to turn. And and what what the, the verse says there is when God saw how they turned from their wicked ways, he turned from the destruction he had planned for them. Same, same word. When God saw their repentance, he relented from judgment. Now this has led to the question that some have asked, I didn't think God changed his mind. I mean, God said 40 days and then it was gonna be destroyed. And then he didn't destroy them after 40 days. What does that do to God's word? There's a a consistent principle here that God never changes his ways and he never relents on a promise. And he always responds appropriately to where people are. So when God promises judgment, he has a consistent purpose for doing so and it is to extend the possibility of repentance. God foretells judgment because he desires people to have a chance to turn. Because what is his character like? What did he tell Moses? Gracious and compassionate, extending forgiveness to thousands. Nineveh had an incredible experience They probably didn't become Yahweh worshipers. There's no sign here that they all started practice Judaism and and gave their loyalty to Yahweh. All we know is that they realized their ways were wicked and it was gonna bring judgment. And so they said, we're gonna turn. But this story isn't really about Nineveh. You see, this is a story about Jonah going to Nineveh, but the book of Jonah wasn't written for Nineveh. It wasn't written for Assyria. Probably no one in Assyria ever read this story. Who was this story written down for? It was written down for Israel. It was written down for God's people. And it's it's interesting to wonder what would it have been like 8th century BC. You're an Israelite sitting around the campfire, just picture this image, and and there's a new book of prophecy that's being passed around, and someone comes and starts reading the story of Jonah to you. How are they gonna receive this story? What kinds of connections are they gonna make as they're listening? It's interesting, because there's another prophet living around the same time as Jonah, who we also have there writing. And they wrote directly to Israel. This prophet's name is Amos. And it's very interesting to read at the time that Jonah has been sent to Nineveh, what's going on back in Israel? 
and what they're wrestling with. Let's just do a little tour of the book of Amos. Amos chapter three, verse two. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your sins. Verse seven. Surely the Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Chapter five, verse six. Seek the Lord and live, for he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter five. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Do you notice the similarity of what Amos is suggesting to Israel and what the king of Nineveh is saying? Who knows? Maybe God will have mercy. Here is Amos. Look, if we read through the whole book, what we find is that Israel is abusing their fellow countrymen. The wealthy are oppressing the poor. They're stealing from each other. They're abusing each other. They're murdering each other and they're not honoring the Lord. And Amos is saying, destruction is coming on Israel if you don't repent. They loved to look over at their neighbor, the Assyrians, at how wicked and evil they are. In fact, in the early part of Amos, he actually points out all the other nations and said, yes, they're very evil and they're gonna get what's coming. But Israel, you're God's people and you don't look any different than them. So Israel has been warned of coming judgment if they don't turn. And then they get this little story about Jonah who went to the most wicked people on earth a people condemned to die because of their wickedness. And when Nineveh was warned of coming judgment, Nineveh turned and God showed mercy on them. What's the message to Israel? If God will have mercy on the most wicked city in existence, how much more will this loving, gracious, and compassionate God have mercy on his own children when they turn. That's who he is. And he desires to see you come back to him. He desires to see healing and mercy poured out on his people. But to experience that Israel, you have to turn. And none of this makes sense if you don't have a foundational understanding of a God who loves showing mercy. So often when we have this picture of somebody calling for repentance, what we see is an angry prophet and an angry God ready to burn people. And as I heard one pastor say recently, look, if there is not mercy and forgiveness, repentance is stupid. Like, if, if you know that being honest about what you've done will only end in judgment, your best strategy is to hide. 
The only thing that makes being really vulnerable about your sin and about turning safe is if you know that God is merciful and forgiving. That foundation has to be in place for confession to be safe, for confession to be wise. You have to know that we have a God who longs to heal and restore. And in fact, throughout the New Testament, we see this pattern of God's kindness affirmed over and over again. Romans chapter two, Paul says this, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? We repent because the one receiving our repentance is so kind and wants to see healing. Second Corinthians chapter seven, Paul again says this, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Over and over again, the New Testament affirms that it is the kindness in the heart of God that makes repentance safe. We, um, our family got a dog a couple of years ago and like we instantly became those like silly obsessed dog people. Like if you go through our pictures, we have more pictures of our dog than anything else in our phone. We take pictures, of like everything he does, we think is really cute. We just love this guy. We talk to him like he's one of our children. It's weird, but we're really excited about it. And when he was a puppy early on, we had one of those uh, glue traps you put along the baseboards, you know, to catch bugs. And um, being the dork that he is, he stuck his muzzle fully in that trap. And when I found him, it had gotten to the point where his lip and his ear were stuck in the glue trap so that it was pulling his mouth up like this. Very uncomfortable for the little dude. And so I sit down with him to try to cut and untangle this glue trap out of his mouth. And what do you think he did? He started squirming and kicking like crazy. And every time I tried to work on it, as he kicked, what happened? It brought him more pain. Because he was convinced that this work that I was doing on him was torture. And finally, he gave in, let his body go limp, and let me untangle him from the trap he had gotten himself in. Repentance can be a very painful process. It can hurt a lot. But all of our attempts to kick back and push against the one who lovingly wants us to get us out of the trap we're in only increases the pain. And God invites us in his kindness to let him get to work rescuing us from the things that lead to death. He also invites the church to be the place where we do that. Because restoration from a pattern of sin is a community project. That's why we baptize people. It's because we understand that walking with the Lord is not an individual solo project. It's a community project. In fact, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul gives instruction on how to do this. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. That receiving confession and walking together 
is part of what it means to be the family of God. When I was a young man at the University of Arkansas in my 20s, I had known the Lord for years, but I had stepped into a pattern of repetitive sin that played out over and over and over again in my life. I kept going back to it again and again and again. And I had this phrase that I would tell myself over and over again. I know this is destructive for me. I know this is terrible. It's gotta stop. Tomorrow's gonna be a new day. Next week is gonna be a new day. You know what was really interesting about that resolution? Tomorrow never seemed to come. Today was always the day to indulge sin and tomorrow was gonna be the day of repentance. And I just kept kicking that can further and further down the road. And interestingly, the further I did that, the deeper into my sin I got. It wasn't until I was 23 years old that God grabbed my attention and showed me how devastating where I was going could be, the death that the path I was going on could lead to. And I knew that tomorrow wasn't good enough anymore. Repentance had to happen today. Now, that's gonna play out differently for a lot of people. For me, that took the form of getting really honest with some people in my life and showing up on a Saturday night, walking in this aisle and getting a blue chip. That was my tangible repentance starts today as I jumped in to celebrate recovery. And what I discovered over and over again, that so long as repentance is coming tomorrow, today is gonna bring slavery. When repentance comes today, tomorrow brings freedom. So I wanna invite us to do tonight is to repent. By the way, that was a significant moment for me. It's one that I've marked and I look back on, but that wasn't my only repentance moment. I actually, in prepping for the sermon, had to go repent of some things to my wife. I was like, I can't preach tonight. unless I go apologize for some things. We have a life of repentance. But I wanna challenge that tonight would be the night that we choose to turn. I don't know what everybody's got going on in this room. But I imagine there could be someone in this room that's been flirting with the idea of an affair. A friendship in the office, connecting on Facebook with an old high school friend, and the imagination started to go there. The conversations have started to get more and more intimate and close. And you're on a road to disaster. And maybe you've already crossed that line and you're living in hiding and shame. Maybe somewhere in the pandemic, you're working from home and a four o'clock happy hour sounds fun one day. Great, that's fun. And then it becomes a four o'clock happy hour the next day. And then the next day. And if you started drinking at 4.30, why not have another one at 5.30? And next thing you know, there's a pattern and you're just drinking away your pain and your stress. And there's a trajectory that started in your life that you don't even know how to stop. Or it started out as a really understandable prescription 
to help you with an injury or a surgery. And somewhere along the lines, your relationship with the pill changed. Maybe it's something not quite so dramatic. Maybe you've let some coldness set in in an important relationship. Maybe with your spouse, a family member, or a friend. They've hurt you. And so you feel justified in your resentment. You feel justified in giving less of your emotional energy to that relationship. Because they're obviously not putting in the work. So why would you anymore? And over time, a coldness and a distance has turned into a resentment and maybe even a cruelty. Maybe it's just busyness. It's traveling baseball. It's shopping online. That you've embraced a pattern that if it continues will lead to destruction. So I wanna invite us to do tonight is to hear that there is a merciful, loving God that doesn't want that for you. And let repentance come today. So we're gonna have some time, about five minutes, just to seek the Lord and to pray. And what you want to invite to do, I know this sound, could sound crazy scary, but if there's something that the Lord is pressing on your heart that tonight is the night to turn, I want to invite you to share that with somebody else. Invite someone else into it to pray. In fact, we have community leaders and people across the room that are available. If, if you're one of those people, would you just kind of stand up real quick so people can see where you are? Yeah, they're available and, and would love to pray with you and process with you. And so if you see where they are, feel free just to scoot over to them. I wanna encourage you guys, don't assume that because someone stands up and goes and needs prayer that they're like a serial killer and we all need to scoot away from them. Everyone in this room has something to repent of. I had to do that work today in preparation for tonight. But there's a truth that if we lose sight of, this whole project is lost. And that is that your God is compassionate merciful, abounding in love and kindness and delighted to expense forgiveness, to dispense forgiveness to every one of us. So let's spend some time with the Lord.
calls us back to him. He's close, he's near. As we come face to face with maybe a sin that might be heavy, would you see that it's his kindness that draws us to him? It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Let's lift this up together as a church. Where shall we go to escape your glory? No valley low, no mountain on high. When billows roll, when we cry for your mercy, will you remind us of your love and grace? And how your grace flows. Our hearts are formed more like you, Jesus, as your love pours over us.
God, we love you. We're grateful for you. Lord, thank you for being a God who is kind or that pursues us in that kindness to lead us closer to you, Father. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you receive communion elements on the way in, uh, would you take those now? Um, just hold them. Would you take the bread? Would you thank Jesus for dying on the cross for us? His body broken for us. Maybe a prayer of gratitude. Would you take that and would you eat tonight? Would you take the cup representing the blood of Christ spilled to cover our sins? Would you say maybe a prayer of gratitude to God? Thank you for your blood covering us. Would you take that and drink? As we prepare our hearts to leave this place, I'd love to read this passage. It's an assurance of pardon from Micah. Chapter seven, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you who pardons our sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob. You show love to Abraham as you pledged an oath to our ancestors long ago. Would you read this with me as we prepare our hearts to leave? Let's go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And would you say this with me? Thanks be to God. Go in peace, fellowship. We'll see you next week. If you need prayer, we have um, some people available over to my left and to your right. Go in peace.